Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. I'm Dave Thomas, and I'll be your host today. It's my great pleasure to introduce the Honorable Jeremy Fogel. After growing up in the Bay Area, he graduated from Stanford University and Harvard Law School. From 1974 to 1978, he was in private practice in the Bay Area. From 1978 to 1981, he was an attorney with the Mental Health Advocacy Project. In 1981, he was appointed to the bench of the Santa Clara Municipal Court. In 1986, he was appointed to the bench of the Santa Clara Superior Court, where he served until 1998, when he was appointed to the district court bench in the Northern District of California by President Bill Clinton. He served from 1998 till 2018, with his final seven years being as the executive director of the Federal Judicial Center. Beginning in 2018, Judge Fogel became the first executive director of the Berkeley Judicial Institute, 2023 recipient of the college's Samuel E. Gates Litigation Award. This award is presented by the Foundation of the American College of Trial Lawyers and was established in 1980 to honor a lawyer or judge who has made a significant contribution to the improvement of the litigation process. The person selected might be a trial practitioner, a judge, a teacher, a writer, a legislator, an administrator, or initiator of organizations or programs, or some other person whose work has been substantively significant or who has inaugurated or advanced significant programs. Samuel E. Gates was a president-elect of the college who died shortly before he was to be sworn in. In Gates' memory, the college created the award in his name. The award is funded by Gates' firm, Debevoise & Plimpton of New York City. Gates was recognized as a pioneer in the field of aviation law, playing a major role in shaping the laws and international conventions that govern airline flights and in representing domestic and international airlines. Judge Fogel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very honored uh, to receive the award, and I'm very uh, happy to be with you today. We're, we're so grateful to have you, Your Honor. So I want to begin by asking not about all those jobs. We're going to get to those later, but tell our listeners what led you to law school? What was the path for Jeremy Fogel growing up in the Bay Area that brought you on this incredible career trajectory? Well, it's interesting. I wasn't at all sure that I even wanted to be a lawyer. I had a lot of interests when I was young. My major in college was religious studies. And I thought uh, for a long time about uh, being an academic and studying uh, religion and theology. I was really interested in the things that motivate people the deepest level. It was not so much sectarian or you know any particular faith, but more like why do people have those beliefs and how do people uh, shape their lives and make the most important decisions in their lives. And what happened was as I thought about what that would actually be like, I concluded that at least for my temperament and my skill set, it would be a little bit too quiet. I like being out in the community. I like doing things. I like uh, speaking. I like interacting with people. I like teaching, but not so much in the academic sense as I like practical teaching, teaching people skills and, and ways of doing things. And so, and it also was a time of social change. It was the Vietnam War era. There was a lot of uh, upheaval on college campuses and out in the, out in the community. There was a, a lot of change in terms of social roles, women's movement, uh, civil rights movement. And, and I just at some point concluded that um, academic life would, would not suit me as well as something where I actually had a, um, a skill set to offer people. And law school is a, 
place that a lot of people go to in a situation like that. It's a, the law is a big tent. There's a lot of different things you can do in the law. And so that's what ended up attracting me to it. And then when I was in law school, it was interesting. Um, I was not, I guess, by any stretch, your typical law student. I found the, the uh, way that law school works to kind of narrow your mind, to shape the way you think. It's really pretty well described by Professor Kingsfield in the paper chase, which actually was <clears throat> contemporaneous with the time that I was at Harvard. I think you know, he was modeled after a contracts professor that I didn't have, but my roommate did. And so in addition to going to law school, I actually uh, had a part-time job. It was, a, it was an interesting challenge. I worked at a crisis intervention program in Boston and was working at night, you know, dealing with people who were having suicidal episodes or drug overdoses or other kinds of problems. And that's sort of a lifelong interest in mental health. And uh, so I would go to the uh, crisis center and work there at night, and then I would go to my nine o'clock uh, class following that. And it was a really interesting juxtaposition of those two things. And I got through law school, I think, by keeping part of myself outside of the, for lack of a better term, indoctrination that you get as a law student. So I think I learned a lot. I thought I got a really good legal education, but I also preserved a certain kind of vision about helping people in a different way, being with people in a different way that went right back to my religious studies days. <clears throat> well, I have to think that that experience while you were working at Harvard Law School must have shaped you because you returned to the Bay Area and after a few years of practice, you ended up with the Mental Health Advocacy Project. Could you tell us a little bit about what that journey in the first few years of your uh, career was like on the way to the bench? Sure. So I, I came back to the Bay Area and I knew that the kind of law I wanted to practice was community-based. I didn't really think seriously about joining a big firm or anything like that. I, I ended up spending the first couple of years doing a lot of work in, in the housing rights area, dealing with housing discrimination and housing access and things like that. We actually, I was part of a nonprofit that was funded by the city of San Jose, which is where I lived and did, did a lot of legal work for them. And then in 1978, the American Bar Association actually had a, a grant program to help local lawyers learn how to work with clients who had mental health issues. It was a pretty significant problem. It was a time of deinstitutionalization. All the big mental hospitals were being forced to close because of court orders and things of that nature. And so there were people out in the community who needed help, and they were very difficult clients to deal with because of their uh, cognitive issues and their emotional issues. And so there was a grant program that the ABA had. My local bar association got one of those grants. They hired me to do the work because I had this mental health background from my law school days. And then I got some more money. I got a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health, and I got a grant from the state of California. And we were able to cobble together enough funding to start a legal aid program for specifically for people with mental uh, health issues, chronic mental illnesses and other kinds of, of challenges of that nature. And so that that's what the Mental Health Advocacy Project was. It was uh, a specific legal services organization for people in that category. And, you know, one of the things I'm proudest of is that, you know, we're 45 years out, it still exists. It became a, a licensed contractor of the county for its mental health services and got funding from United Way and other types of agencies. And so it became a real solid and, and sustainable organization. So it still, it still serves that community. 
Wow, that is really excellent <clears throat> to hear. I have to say, Your Honor, as a career criminal defense lawyer, I have uh, seen the significant need for mental health services among a huge percentage of criminal defendants who come before courts. And so it's really great to hear that. I have to also say that it's been my observation as a practitioner in, in my career that relatively few lawyers uh, who work in legal services uh, are elevated to the bench. And at the risk of stereotyping, I, I have to imagine that was even less um, of a phenomenon in the 1970s. So can you help us understand how your career transitions from being a lawyer in the trenches, um, you know, representing these clients to your appointment to the bench of the Santa Clara Municipal Court after only seven years in practice. Yeah, well, it was, it was, that's an interesting story. So um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will remember Jerry Brown, who was actually the governor of California, not once, but twice. He was, he served one eight year term in the seventies and early eighties, and then another much later. And the early version of Jerry Brown was sometimes made fun of as being Governor Moonbee because he was kind of outside the box on so many issues. But one of the things he did, which I think was um, very admirable, was he was one of the first governors, I think, anywhere in the country who placed a real emphasis on, on diversity. He, he was way ahead of his time that way. And I mean, one way to think about it was that, that you know, I, I remember growing up in, in California and just about every judge I ever saw was, was a white man over 50. And uh, when I went to judges college in 1982, I was appointed in 1981. And so I went, went to college in 1982 and, and uh, about 40% of our class were women, about a third of them were people of color. That was just unheard of in, in California at that time. And so, so part of his effort at diversity, it wasn't just limited to race and gender. It was also people from unconventional practice backgrounds. And that would have been me. I mean, I had this practice that was very much unusual. And it had, I think, because we had gotten this national recognition, we'd gotten one of very few grants that the National Institute of Mental Health issued. And we had state funding. We got a lot of people who had thought that what we were doing was important. And so it had gotten that kind of publicity. I had been in San Jose, been active in the community, uh, knew a lot of uh, people in local government, county and state level and city level, and all of them had political ties. And, you know, it was something where I was definitely an unconventional candidate, but I knew people who knew me who were influential and they thought I would, I'd have something to, to bring to the bench. So it was uh, you know, and I had some connections in the governor's office. I mean, to be honest, I mean, it just never helps. And, and so never hurts rather to, to have that. So, so it, it was, it was, I think at the time, a real surprise to people, it, least of all, it, it was a surprise to me, but, but it was something I, I really welcomed. And I, I'll say that one of the things that made me want to do it was that I always felt a bit constrained as an advocate because, you know, the, the, the duty that advocates have is to be a zealous advocate for, for your client and your client's expressed interests. And, and this didn't work with the people I was representing because a lot of the times their expressed interests were not sustainable. I mean, they were delusional or they were, you know, they were fixated on pursuing destructive, self-destructive courses of conduct. And a lot of what I had to learn was how to listen to them and how to communicate them and with them and how to build trust with them. But I also had to learn skills at how to solve their problems. And what 
I think is really needed in problem solving is being able to see not only your own side, but to see the other interests in play and the views of other people involved. And so I was looking, I think as I practiced, I was kind of looking toward being a neutral of some kind. And the other thing that happened is that when I appeared in court, and I actually was in court quite a bit with my clients, I didn't really like the way they were treated by a lot of the judges uh, before whom uh, we appeared. I mean, they just didn't, they didn't get where my clients were at. They were disrespectful. They were rude. Certainly not all of them. There were some really wonderful counterexamples, people who really inspired me. But it made me think, you know, that's something I'd like to do. I think I could do that in a way that would be, I could be kind to people. I could be compassionate. I could be thoughtful about people. That's, that's great to hear. My, uh, my partners in my law firm sometimes get a little tired of me talking about how in Ohio, where we still have municipal courts, in many ways, they're the most important courts mm -hmm. that, that we have. Because in Ohio, as it, I believe used to be in California, municipal courts hear housing disputes. They hear small money civil cases, which can include things like medical collections. They hear traffic cases, which means people's driver's licenses are at stake. And if you really want to affect someone's life, you're dealing with where they live through an eviction. You are dealing with a, a $1,500 bill that might make or break somebody or their ability to get to and from work because they, their driver's license has been suspended. And so municipal courts affect people every single day in communities. And it's great to hear that's part of Well, yeah, it is, I would say I mean, it's, it's really true. They're incredibly consequential courts for people who appear in them. And I think the most important things I ever learned about judging, I learned as a muni court judge. I mean, the only amendment I'd make to that is I also learned some things when I did family law, which we'll talk about in a second, but that was a superior court jurisdiction in California. But, you know, I'd say other than that, I mean, just learning how to talk to people, learning how to listen to people, learning how to manage volume, learning how to deal with self-represented people, learning how to deal with people who don't have the faintest idea what's going on. I mean, all of is stuff I had to do on a daily basis in high volume uh, during those five years. And it was incredibly useful foundation. But it is the foundation for your then almost 13 year career on the Santa Clara Superior Court. And you heard all kinds of cases as a judge of that court. Is that right? Yeah, I, I did. I, when I started, actually I did criminal motions for the first six months or so because I came in the middle of the year. But my first couple of years, I was assigned to family court. That was the Unfortunately, it was, it's not so much anymore, but it was sort of a hazing ritual for new judges as you, you got assigned to family. And it's very unfortunate for all concerned, but I really liked, I liked family very much. And we actually volunteered and went back and did it a couple of times afterwards. And that's, I was going to say, I mean, that's where I learned some other things that were really important because, you know, there really isn't any, any place that I can think of where you get such a steady diet of intense emotion and people who otherwise, you know, are, they're not my mental health clients. I mean, they're people who most of the time are doing just fine, but they get into a contested divorce or a contested child custody case and they lose their minds. And the judge is in such a, a critical position to make that a good thing or a bad thing. And really, it was just something that, that just hooked me in and I was very passionate about it. But you didn't just your family cases, is that no. right? No, that's right. I did that. I did, I did law in motion. I did, you know, I used the other side of my brain. I did, I was the civil law in motion judge for a couple of go rounds. I did a probate. I did a lots and lots of settlement and, and case management. And toward the, the end of my time on the spirit court, you know, people forget San Jose 
now is, you know, calls itself the capital of Silicon Valley. Well, when I moved there, there was no Silicon Valley. I mean, there was, I mean, there were tomatoes and fruit orchards and things like that, but no tech. And the tech all came later. But by the 90s, when I was, I had been on the Superior Court for a while, we were starting to get a lot of litigation that was spun off by the tech industry. And so I did a lot of that. And so that was, I think, ultimately part of what got me to the federal bench was doing those cases, doing trade secret cases, doing high-level employment cases involving tech executives, doing uh, securities cases involving tech companies. It was a very different diet than I had as a, as a family law judge, but it was it's a nice thing about Superior Court. You get to do some of everything. Well, and I, I have to confess, I, I did a lot of preparation for this podcast, Judge Fogel, but just now I'm realizing that your transition from the Superior Court to the District Court was in 1998, really at the first tech boom. And that, that must have been a, a remarkable time to be on the bench in the Bay Area. Oh, it was. I mean, it, as they say, it, you, you, you kind of had to be there because I, mean, I started practicing in San Jose in 1974. And as I said, it was still pretty much an agricultural community. The biggest industry at the time was canning of fruits and vegetables. And, you know, by the time I went to the federal bench, the, the tech industry was in full bloom. And just seeing that transition take place and watching the community grow and about doubled in size over that period of time. And, you know, we had, a, when I started practicing, it was all pretty much local law firms and, you know, the biggest law firm in town maybe had 20 lawyers or something like that. And, and by the time I went to the federal bench, we had a lot of the big national firms um, were practicing there and appearing in my court. And, you know, it just really changed everything, but in, in particular, it changed the legal culture. And one of the reasons I was sought out for the federal position was because I had handled those kinds of cases as a Superior Court judge. I had interacted with a lot of the same law firms. I had dealt with a lot of the same issues. I mean, there's some things that are exclusively federal, like, like, like patent cases, but there were a lot of things that, that were something that could be brought in either court or they crossed over. And so, you know, I had been able to demonstrate my ability such as it was with those things. And that was part of what made me a viable candidate for the district court. Our listeners, most of whom are trial lawyers and all of whom are interested in the law and the, the craft of trial lawyering, love to hear stories. And so if you could, what is a memorable trial you had either as a superior court judge or a, or a district court judge that either would be a great story just for the benefit of our listeners or something that really shaped your view as a judge and now as a scholar? Well, I will, I will share a couple. I think probably the, the best trial I ever did from the standpoint of just really excellent advocacy on both sides. I mean, two incredibly capable lawyers, really interesting issues, fiercely litigated, but with total professionalism, you know, not a hint of anything inappropriate. It was a case that I did in district court. It involved a tech executive who claimed he'd been uh, denied a promotion because of his uh, religion. He was Muslim. It was shortly after 9-11, and the company said it had nothing to do with it. And so it was just a really, I mean, it was a, you know, the, the issues were obviously very important to the people involved that had a, a sort of a public profile that was, uh, it, it attracted attention. The way the case played out and the way the evidence came in, there really wasn't much to the claim. I mean, I thought about granting summary judgment, actually, and I didn't because, you know, I felt, well, 
you know, if there's any doubt, I'm just going to let this case go to trial because of, you know, what's at stake. And the, you know, the case was lasted about three weeks. The jury wasn't out for very long. They came back with a defense verdict. But I think the thing that was so powerful to me was I really saw two exceptionally skilled lawyers, and I think this is something that will certainly resonate with the members of the college, that it just, you know, it, that's what it's, that's what you imagine when you kind of draw it up, when you think about what a good trial looks like. I mean, that was a really good trial, and I still think about that. The hardest case I had, and I think, you know, some people associate me with this, was a case involving the uh, ex execution protocol in California. And it was a really tough case. In fact, I know that there was litigation in your home state, Dave, you know, about, about the same exact issue, about the whether the protocol for lethal injection was... Um, sufficiently reliable. And, and so that was the issue that, that we had. And there had been several executions where there had been problems where you know, the, the protocol is supposed to immediately knock the person out and then they're injected with the lethal drug and they don't feel anything because they're asleep. Well, and the, there was some evidence that wasn't working. Like for whatever reason, the protocol wasn't being administered properly or it wasn't working the way that it was intended to. And that people were actually awake when they were getting the, or they were sensate at least when they were getting the the drug that killed them, and that was an Eighth Amendment problem. So, so that was the that was the issue that was presented. And you know, I I thought the the plaintiff made a pretty strong showing that there was something that wasn't right. I mean, it was there was, there was a lot of evidence from heart monitors and things like that indicating that the anesthesia was not being uh, introduced appropriately. And so, you know, I I stopped one execution so that further investigation could be done. And then we had a long uh, period of fact-finding. We had an evidentiary hearing. And, and what was, to me, what was interesting about it was, and very stressful about it, was that, that the issue in the case was pretty discreet. It was, does this protocol work? And the state actually stipulated, so it wasn't even a contested issue, that um, if the anesthesia did not work, that there was an Eighth Amendment problem. So that was not even contested. And so the issue really came down to whether the anesthesia worked or not. And that's a factual matter that, that I decided needed some further investigation. Well, of course, it was about the death penalty. It was about the particular defendant in my case was just a poster child for people who believe in the death penalty. I mean, he had raped and murdered a 17-year-old young woman. And, uh, you know, it, it was just... You know, he wasn't anybody that you, one could have any sympathy for, and there was no doubt about his guilt. He never contested it. So, so I ended up being, I mean, literally, I personally ended up being the focus of this, you know, incredibly intense and emotional debate that our society has about the death penalty. And people interpreted my ruling as being, you know, sympathetic to the the murderer and. The, being hostile to the death penalty and all sorts of things that were not at issue in my case at all. So it was just sort of reality intruding on, you know, my trying to do my job as a judge. And I mean, it's still, I mean, I'm just talking about it now. I can get emotional because it was just such an intense experience. Well, I'd like to follow up on that. Yeah, sure. So first about, about the first trial you talked about and the quality of lawyering, I, I'd really love to, to, dive into that a little bit more. I know that I always want to improve my craft. What are qualities that you looked for as a trial court judge that, that defined effective advocacy and, you know, made people better at their jobs as trial lawyers? Well, 
Okay. I mean, and, and I think n- none of this is going to come as a surprise to your listeners. Preparation, you know, I would say both of the lawyers in this trial knew their case inside and out. You know, they, they, they knew all the facts, they knew all the arguments, and they, 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 they clearly had spent an enormous amount of time preparing. So, so I think preparation, being a good storyteller, right, because you're trying to, to explain to a jury, most of whom do not have any legal sophistication, what happened and why is what happened significant and why should it affect the decisions you need to make. So, so being prepared, being really good at telling stories, being sensitive to what's going on around you, you know, noticing what's happening with jurors, noticing what's happening with the judge, you know, sort of having a feel for the environment of the trial. It's kind of a sixth sense almost that I think really good trial lawyers have. And then I think being sort of unfailingly courteous and professional which is not the same thing as not being passionate. I mean, I can think of a couple of times during this trial where the two lawyers got into it. I mean, they disagreed about something. And, and there, was a, there were a couple of objections I had to rule on that they were really worked up about. You know, we actually had to take a recess and go into chambers and, you know, have a hearing outside the presence of the jury. And, you know, and they were very passionate, but they never at any time became unprofessional. It was always about the issue and why the issue mattered. And so I think the professionalism is another thing that really distinguished that trial. And, you know, I think both of the lawyers are just really smart. You know, they had a lot of experience. They had a lot of understanding about how to do a trial. So I think all of those things. That's great to hear when I'm asked about what what makes for a good trial lawyer. I tell people it's 95% preparation. It's 95% knowing your case, knowing the law, and thinking through how you want to present, present it in court. Um, now there's that extra 5%. That's, that's the flair, the, you know, the individual personality components that maybe, you know, can uh, make something really interesting. But 95% of it is just hard work. It's sure. just being in Absolutely. Writing. Yeah, and I'd say about both of these counsel that, you know, and when I think of them, and I, I've spoken so highly of both of them in different contexts, you know, they just work really hard. You know, they don't, they never mail anything in. I mean, there's never a shortcut. I mean, they, they really are... Yeah, know your case, that's for sure. So I'm going to ask about the the capital case next. That was one of the many things I looked at in preparing for this podcast. Morales versus Tilton, I think, is the caption. Mm -hmm. And so what I wanted to ask about that and the art of judging or the experience of judging is from the perspective of a practitioner. And so as a a career criminal defense lawyer, one of the things that uh, I never have to do is pick a side. There are other difficult things about all of our jobs, but you know, no one's going to blame me for being an advocate for someone. I've never had to choose. And I, I just can't imagine what it's like to be in the middle of that storm that you were describing in the Morales case. I mean, what's it like to try and get through that? Your well, it's, it just took all of the resilience that I had. You know, there's this poem by Rudyard Kipling called If, you know, that I think about. And there's this, my grandfather used to recite it. You know, he was, he often had too much to drink and he would get drunk and he'd start reciting poetry. And he liked to recite this poem, you know, and there was one line from it. If you can keep your head when those about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. And that line kept coming back to me because it was like, I, I was just trying to do my job. You know, I, I never taken a public position on the death penalty. I'm not about to, you know, I had a job to do as a judge. I had to uphold the constitution, death penalties, as I know is still constitutional, you know, so it's my job was to apply the law to this particular set of facts. But all of the people around me 
were losing their heads and blaming it on me. And there was a, that I was either preventing the execution of a horrible human being, or I was going to allow state-sponsored killing. So, you know, whatever I did, there was going to be a segment of the population that was going to go ballistic. And the case wasn't about the death penalty. It was it arose in the context of the death penalty, but it was actually a very intensive case about the effectiveness of a particular protocol. And the evidence was all about that. After I issued the injunction, I went to San Quentin and I went to the death chamber and I spent time in there. You know, that was kind of creepy. But I mean, you know, all of the stuff I had to do in my judicial role was separate from the the political and emotional storm around the death penalty. I ended up in the middle of it anyway, and I got hate mail, and I got nasty editorials. I got supportive editorials. I got supportive mail. But but it was just a, a, a tremendously intense sort of, and I wrote an article about it called In the Eye of the Storm. That's exactly what it felt like. That that And it went on for months. I mean, and it, it I had to keep remembering, you look, you're just doing your job. You know, the point here is to have integrity, do your job, explain what you do. This is something that led directly into teaching I've done for judges since then. Show your work. I did a lot of writing in the Morales case. In every order I issued, I went to great lengths to explain why I was making the order and cite the evidence and to, you know, refer to the record over and over again. Because in, in even to explain, you know, I'm not ruling on the constitutionally death penalty here, you know, I'm not ruling on the moral rightness of the death penalty here. And, you know, so that when there would be stories or when there would be journalists or when there would be letters, you know, I would always say, no, that it isn't what I said. Look at the order. Here it is right here. This is what the order was. This is the issue that I decided. And, you know, over time, I think it started making an impact. I think as I look back on that case, I, there's still people in California who remember me less than fondly because I, I did what I did in that matter. But Overall, I think, you know, as, as I sort of stuck to the, the North Star here and really followed this idea that, you know, judging, there's a core integrity you have to have as a judge. And I think that, in the end, really did work to, to my benefit. I think I got a lot of respect from people, even those who disagreed. I, I ran into somebody years later when I was at the FJC Federal Judicial Center, when I was there, who had litigated a, another lethal injection case before the Supreme Court. And he said, you know, you just made a really great record and you did a really good job. And that really meant a lot to me to, to hear that um, because that's what I was trying to do, you know, but, but it was you know, trying to do that with everybody yelling and screaming at you is not so easy. Well, and you mentioned the FJC and I, I wanted to ask about that next. I, in 2011, you become the executive director of the Federal Judicial Center. I have to admit that I'm only a little bit familiar with exactly what the Federal Judicial Center does. Can you tell us what that transition was like and what you did and what the role well, did? Well, something we haven't talked about a lot is I, I have been very involved in judicial education all the way back to uh, my days on the state court. It really started when I was, uh, was going to lead and said we'll talk about it later, but I, it started out was I would teach classes for new judges about judicial ethics because I had been been on the Judicial Ethics Committee for California. I was the Muni Court representative, but and then I was the chair of the committee later. But the where I really got into teaching judges was as a family law judge. And I, I had been, I had liked family court. I think I kind of had a, a passion for it. And so I got asked to be one of the instructors for the basic family law program for every new family law judge is required under California law to take this class. And so I was one of the 
jujitsu instructors. And so I got into that and that, that led to other teaching, mostly around issues that arose when I was a family law judge. So I, I taught a, a class with a, a clinical psychologist about how, and so I, you know, I did a lot of teaching and got involved more and more in that. So by the time I was thinking about the FJC and there was a vacancy there, I had been doing judicial education for almost 20 years. And what the FJC is a, sometimes it's described as like an internal university for the federal judiciary. It, it does judicial education for all of the judges in the federal judiciary and many of the senior staff. And so it's the clerks of court and probation officers and mediators and librarians and all these people. So the, there's educational, there's an educational side. And then there's a, a research side where it does research on issues of judicial administration and provides data and, and, and backup for policy things that are done by the Judicial Conference of the United States and, and its committees. And, and, it, and it does a lot of publishing. It puts out books and, and, and uh, guides and treatises and things like that. So, so that's the best way to describe it. And the, the director is sort of the strategic thinker for the, the center. Um, he or she reports to a, a board that's chaired by the chief justice. So you, you, know, you kind of go right up to the top of the pecking order in terms of having impact on what the federal judiciary does. So during that period, you have to move. You have to leave your home in the Bay Area and move to Washington, D.C., as I understand it. Is that right? That's right. And then you also, are you no longer here in cases? Right. And during that whole time I was at the FJC, I was still a district judge. I mean, I was just essentially on leave from my court to, to do the FJC job. But I had I wanted to go back to the bench after the FJC, I could have. I was still, I still had judicial status. I chose not to for reasons we'll discuss, but most of the directors before me actually did go back to the bench. I had an opportunity at Berkeley, which I found irresistible, but the, yeah, I, I did not hear cases. I finished up some cases that I had been working on in 2011, but other than that, I became sort of a full-time educator. Well, let's talk about Berkeley because that's really going to lead into some of the really substantive things that I, I want to ask you about next, Your Honor. Uh, what is the Berkeley Judicial Institute and what's, what do you do there? Okay. Well, so one of the things I got to do at the FJC was to help plan educational programs for the judiciary. And we did, in addition to all of the skills stuff that, that uh, I, I feel so strongly about, we also had substantive programs and we would have every year would have constitutional law updates and people talk about what had happened at the Supreme Court in the past year and what the major trends were. And so one of the people that we constantly use and that everybody looks to as a, a resource in this area is Erwin Chemerinsky, who's now the dean at, at Berkeley Law. And so I met Erwin during the my FJC tenure. We hit it off immediately. We just really enjoyed each other's company and enjoyed talking. And sort of near the end of my time at the FJC, I think it was a couple of years before I left, you know, we started talking about the idea of my my working with him. He was he was at UC Irvine at the time, which was he was the first dean there and he found that school. And I we talked and got very concrete actually, but I'm a Northern California guy, wasn't really quite all that thrilled about the idea of living in Irvine. And then Irwin got the job at Berkeley. And so I think I remember I wrote him a note to congratulate him. And I said, you know, next time you're in DC, let's have coffee and resume our conversation. 
And so that's what happened. I mean, he was there not too long after that. And we, we got together and I think we, you know, we spent about 45 minutes. We said we could start a, a center at Berkeley Law to study the judiciary and study judges and judging in a way that really hasn't been done anywhere else, you know, where you really kind of involve the, the academy, you have an interchange between academics and, and judges. And the idea being, you know, Berkeley is a really good law school. They have some really good legal scholars. I know hundreds, if not thousands of judges work I've done in my career. And it's like, you could start to get people together in, in, in to have conversations they don't usually have because they, they tend to go on pretty separate tracks. I mean, the academics are interested in their stuff and the judges are interested in their stuff. And so that was the idea was to really synergize the, the two. We needed to get a little bit of seed money. I mean, Berkeley couldn't just fund it out of the box. We got a, one of the people that I had gotten to know from the Bay Area was Larry Kramer, who's the director of the Hewlett Foundation, about to leave to become the head of the London School of Economics. He's, Larry's an amazing guy. And anyway, we just, so I went to him and, and Hewlett gave us some money to start BJI. They gave us the seed grant. And then, you know, the law school has generously funded us since then. And, you know, it's just been an opportunity to do exactly what our mission was, is to try to bring these two groups together. And we do a lot of programs really about judging, you know, what's under the hood, you know, how do judges operate? What do they feel? What do they experience? How can they be more effective and more efficient and more resilient and more independent? I mean, how do they deal with political pressures and things like that? So I, I tell this story on Irwin all the time. I remember when we started, I said, is there anything in particular you want me to do, you know, now that I'm here? And he said, don't embarrass us. That's it. That's my mandate, you know? So, I mean, that's a good mandate to have. My law firm tells me that all the time. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, Your Honor, when I was a, uh, making a transition from college to law school, I met with the, the first lawyer I'd ever met, who was like my second grade friend's father. And I said, well, what should I do? You know, what's your advice for me starting off on this legal career? And he said, enjoy law school because you're going to get to think about the law. Because once you're, practici once you're a practitioner, you're really not going to get to think about it very much. And I, I thought, no, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I, you know, I was 21 years old and all of that, but he was exactly right. You know, as a practitioner, and I would speculate for many judges, especially trial court judges, that you're just, you're trying to get through the day. You know the evidence, you know the law, you're trying to put the two together and you don't get to sit back and say, well, what's the utility? Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, you're too busy and somewhat when you're on the courts of appeals, I mean, I think there's more opportunities there. To, to think about the law, you know, writ large. But yeah, when you're a trial judge, you just don't have, you don't have the time and you're really focused on the particulars of the cases in front of you. And so, and then, and at the opposite end, I mean, some of the best legal academics, I mean, they do this really elegant work and really careful thinking about things, but it's at a level that no judge is going to really have the time to engage with. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can, I always get smiles when I talk about judges reading law review articles, you know, that they don't. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, there, I'm sure there are exceptions as there are for everything, but I mean, generally speaking, judges don't read law review articles and there, there are, you know, clerks who might read a law review article, you know, to help a federal judge, you know, write a, but so I think there really is a lot of talking past each other. And, and I think there's really great work being done in both on both sides. And it's, it's just good to think about ways to get people engaged. I, I couldn't agree more. So I'm going to give you a choice next, uh, judge Fogel. And so I, I read um, that, um, one summary of the mission of the Berkeley Judicial Institute 
is to promote an ethical, resilient, and independent judiciary. You have written and spoken about ethics. You have written and spoken about, and specifically as it relates to judges, and you've talked about exactly what an independent judiciary means. Why don't you pick one? And what's tell us about work you've done in one of those areas, and I'll let you choose. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick resilience because, you know, I know that when I when President Susan Harriman sent me the letter telling me I won the award, I mean she called out the work I've done on humanizing the judiciary. And it was very meaningful to me. And I remember Susan practiced before me many years ago. And it was always just, it was a real nice circle. And the the resiliency part really is about judges as human beings. I mean, it's recognizing that, sure, judges have a role in, in the system. It's a very important one. One of my favorite images to beat up on is Thomas Hobbes, you know, the philosopher. And he very famously said that, you know, judges should be devoid of emotion, you know, that the whole, the the model judge has no emotion. Well, you know, that's, to me, that is just so wrong that I don't even know where to start, except that, I mean, what, there's a grain of truth in it, which is that judges should not decide cases. You know, I mean, it was like when, when President Obama talked about empathy and there was this big reaction, oh, you can't decide cases based on empathy. Well, actually, you can't. I mean, and you can't and you shouldn't, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't have empathy. And, and so the, the idea is that looking at judges as people with emotions, with empathy or compassion or kindness or lack thereof, is this an, an important area of study because it affects the way judges conduct themselves in the world. It's how they interact with each other, how they interact with litigants, how they interact with lawyers, you know, and how resilient they are in terms of their own longevity. And, you know, people's experience, just from a justice standpoint, I mean, people's experience with judges varies so much depending on the judge's demeanor. You know, there, there's a, the, the lawyers in my home county used to do a, a survey of judges. It was controversial, but they rated the judges every couple of years. And the judges who always came out of the top were the ones with the best demeanor, with the best temperament. Some of them were really smart. Some of them weren't as smart, you know, but if they treated people well, if they listened well, that really was noticed. And the opposite was true. I mean, there were a couple of colleagues I had who were really pretty, pretty smart judges. I mean, they were really, they really quick, but they didn't treat people well. They were perceived as being arrogant and impatient. And they always were down at the bottom of the survey, you know? So it's like people's, people's experience of in court is largely affected by how the judge carries him or herself, you know? And so, so, so that, that just led me to think, you know, what can we do to help judges become more uh, self-aware, more more aware of what's going on in their own emotional makeup and their own uh, self sense, and, and develop coping tools so that they can model the aspirational values that we have for judges, which is that they be dignified, that they be patient, that they be, you know, and, and you know, I mean, it's, I know it's this is a, a thing I can go off on for quite a while, but I mean, the idea that judges shouldn't be compassionate, I mean. For 4,000 years, compassion has been one of the traits that cultures all over the world have wanted in judges, you know, and it's really only, compassion doesn't mean that you let, you know, a murderer go free or something like that. It just means that you understand the human experience of the people that you're interacting with. And I think he gets lost in the public mind and even among 
the minds of lawyers and advocates that we ask judges to do this impossible thing, which mm -hmm. is on one hand, we want humans to be judging cases. We, we, we don't want chat GPT to judge cases. We don't want, you know, some non-human factor. So we want you to have the qualities that humans have, which includes sympathy and empathy and emotion. Yet we want you to be completely objective and completely neutral and yeah. not swayed by emotion. And it's, as I said, I've never envied that task. No, and it's actually really hard. And, you know, but it's less hard if you actually have a better sense of what's, ac what's actually going on inside yourself. That then this is what I'm leading up to. And this has sort of been the work I've been engaged in for, for a really long time now, which is, you know, and it comes under the rubric of mindfulness. And, you know, people think about mindfulness as, you know, meditation or something like that. And that actually is relevant to it, but that's not what I mean. I mean, it, what it really means is mindfulness simply means being self-aware. It means being aware of what you're doing, what you're feeling, you know, the extent to which what you're feeling is the result of some type of trigger or as opposed to something else. But it's being able to think in the moment about what the optimal course of action is. And at the same time, be aware of what what's happening to you. You know, it's like you're not just stuffing everything down and gritting your teeth and, and then you go out and do something terrible later. It's like really, it's really being in the moment and noticing what the situation requires. And maybe the situation requires that you set your emotions aside. Maybe the situation requires that you show that you feel someone's pain. I mean, this came up all the time in family court, you know, and if I had to make a custody decision, which was going to make one of the parents unhappy, sometimes both, you know, that being able to deliver that decision in a way that was empathetic was critical. I mean, you know, it was so important. And so sometimes being able to show that you care or that you notice that somebody is experiencing something that's really hard, there, there's nothing wrong with that. Judges should do that. And judges are appreciated when they do that. So it's being able to regulate all that stuff. But you've also talked about not only in this sort of temperament and demeanor component of judging, but you've talked about it in a lot of other areas. So I thought some of this was really interesting. You've talked about the importance of mindfulness when judges have to perform repetitive tasks. Yes. So could t tell us a little bit about well, what's sure. Well, so you I'm sure you've seen this as a criminal defense lawyer. So if a judge is taking guilty pleas, you know, after a while, you know, it's not any big thing to take a guilty plea. I mean, you, from a judicial standpoint, I mean, you know how to do it. You know what questions you have to ask. You know what kind of record you need to make. And, you know, certainly in, in my state, I mean, it was we had forms. You had to be able to check off, you know, to make sure that you would advise the defendant fully as to what their rights were. So it becomes very repetitive. And it's really easy when you have a stressful job to say, well, okay, well, this is going to be easy because this, this I'm just going to kind of go through the, the form. Well, okay, so you do that, and you can probably take a constitutionally adequate plea, but the defendant is watching this automaton kind of going through the, the steps. There's no, there's no contact, there's no transaction going on between the defendant and the judge when this repetitive task is being carried out. And so one of the things I have written about is, like, how do you mindfully do these repetitive things? How do you remind yourself that, you know, it may not be, I mean, this may be the, the 5,000th guilty plea you've taken, but it may be the first one that this defendant has ever entered, you know? And so how do you kind of keep that consciousness in your mind? How do you develop that? Well, and it also, that 
transitions into the importance of examining your own assumptions about the people who are coming in front of you, right? Absolutely. Oh, well, and this, of course, is, is such a hot topic now, you know, about unconscious assumptions, unconscious bias. And, you know, one of, one of the challenges is that if it's unconscious, by definition, you don't know that you're doing it. So how do you improve in that area? And one of the things that being mindful means is you slow down. So I think I'm seeing this, you know, I'm seeing a person who has a particular appearance or is from a particular uh, ethnic background or, or, you know, speaks in a particular way. And I am going to make, without even wanting to, I'm going to make assumptions about that person based on those things that I'm observing, because that's the way our brains work. I mean, we're, they're wired that way. So if you can build into your present mind a, a sense of, okay, well, do I really have any evidence of that? You know, what do I actually know about this person? You know, I mean, I know that they're five feet, seven inches tall. I know that they have dark skin. I know that they are speaking with an accent that sounds different from native English speakers. I know that, okay? But I don't really know much more than that. And so so it's kind of having this curiosity that causes you to ask yourself questions, ask them questions, you know, and really assume as little as necessary about somebody, not to take these mental shortcuts. And I think that's something the judges can and should cultivate because it's just too easy. I mean, I, this is something I practiced for a long time and I still find myself doing it. You know, I still find myself making an assumption about somebody it turns out not to be true. It, it's so easy to do and it's so important not to do it. Yeah. One of the very specific areas where I think about it because of my practice is when a defendant expresses remorse, mm -hmm. which is something that happens in almost every guilty plea, or you hope it does, but that in fact, we don't really understand it. It's so important, accept responsibility, you know, fall on your sword. But I know that I have learned uh, that I was wrong about what I thought about how people do that. And so, you know, we ask you as judges to conclude that my client is being genuine, that the acceptance of responsibility is sincere, but I have learned that the way people express that is is totally different. And it not only is it informed by culture, not only is it informed by language, but I've learned recently it's also informed by trauma. And so people might just be really bad at expressing it, but in fact, they are contrite. So what do you think about that? I think what you just said is absolutely true. I mean, I, I just think it's so easy to rush to judgment about what's going on with somebody else. I, I had I want, one of the things in district court that I found really contributed to my information base about this, we did a lot of immigration cases because of where we were. There's a lot of, there's a lot of both legal and illegal immigration in California. And so we had a pretty large number of cases, we call them 1326s. There's illegal reentry following deportation. And, you know, most of those folks came from very tough circumstances. I mean, parts of Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras or somewhere like that where there was gang activity and they were being threatened with death. And they would they endured incredible hardship just to get to the United States. And then they got kicked out and then they came back. And they would get caught, usually not by for status, but because they had got a DUI or they, you know, they petty theft or something like that. And then they would show up in my courtroom. And I think they felt like what they needed to do was say they were sorry, you know, and I would just day in and day out. I said, no, you know, what's really going on here is that, you know, you've just had this 
pardon the expression, you've just had a really crappy life, you know, and, you know, you're trying to get something better than what you have. And what you did is illegal and I can't let it go. I mean, I have to sentence you. I have to send you to prison because you, you signed a plea agreement, which includes prison time. But, you know, let's just get real here, you know, and is it, you know, and I wish neither of us were here right now, you know, and I'd say that, you know, the, the cultural barriers and the language barriers were pretty, pretty steep, but I certainly can remember times when I could see this kind of light of recognition in there that, oh, wow, you know, whereas if, I think if I had just, you know, imposed sentence and just kind of listened to the allocution and say, yeah, fine, you know, you're sorry, you're not going to come back again. It would have been a completely meaningless. That would have been one of those repetitive tasks, you know. And so it was sort of seeing that each of those interactions is an opportunity. That's great. And thank you for that. So, Judge Fogles, we're kind of coming to the end of our time. I saw that you said when you left the bench and you went to the Berkeley Judicial Institute that you look forward to having your First Amendment rights restored. <laughs> you're no longer a judge. You're no longer a public official. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. If the chief, Chief Justice Roberts, comes to you and wants to hire esteemed retired uh, district court judge Jeremy Fogel, now the executive director of the equally esteemed Berkeley Judicial Institute, and says, hey, we have a bad look right now. And what would you do to fix that? Well, I actually, it's funny you should ask that. And, and by the way, I want to say, and I have said this before, and I'm, I want your listeners to hear it. I, I had a really great working relationship with Chief Justice Roberts, and I really am grateful for him giving me the opportunity to run the FJC. And we had a very good run together. I, I have written about this, and it actually just came out this week. It's a proposal for what I think they can do to fix it that's consistent with the, with the independence of the Supreme Court the constitutional independence of the Supreme Court. And what it comes down to in, in practice is that they would create a reference group, a group of people who actually would be retired judges. And I'm not volunteering myself. I'm suggesting that there are people who, whose integrity is unquestioned, you know, have lots of experience. They may be former chairs of the uh, Code of Conduct Committee or, or the Discipline Committee of the Judicial Conference or former chief circuit judges, but people who are seen as being bipartisan and having unquestioned integrity and set up a group like that. It could be three, it could be five, that when they get a serious ethical question, that instead of just saying, oh, we've got this, we're going to figure this out, we're going we're to get an independent opinion from this group and also have a formally adopted code of conduct. And it doesn't have to be the exact same one that the lower court judges have. In fact, I don't think it can be because recusals are are a different issue at the Supreme Court because it's a there's no replacement for a recused uh, justice. So so it's a two-part thing where you have a different recusal process and a independent reference panel. And I you know I have um, I wrote this co-wrote it with you know a bookbinder and his staff at at Crew so that there would be something on the table. And I really hope that I know the court. I know this for a fact. They've said it publicly, so I'm not disclosing anything. They're looking at something that they might be able to do, at least the chief is. And I don't know what the outcome of that process is likely to be. But I think it's, I mean, we've got to respect their independence. I don't think a solution is going to come from elsewhere. I don't think Congress is going to fix this. I think the court has to fix it. And I think it's in the court's interest to fix it. So... That's what I have to say with my First Amendment rights. <laughs> Thank you very much, Your Honor. So I've got one last question for you, and then I think our time will come to a conclusion. And that is, 
based on the fact that one of the really important values and, and part of the mission of the American College of Trial Lawyers is to educate the next generation of trial lawyers uh, so that they can be good, effective, ethical advocates. And so if you could give one piece of advice to new trial lawyers um, appearing before you when you were a district court judge or a superior court judge or a municipal court judge, uh, what would it be? Or what would you want the new generation of trial lawyers well, to know? Well, I mean, it goes back to the discussion we had about the best trial that I ever had. I mean, be professional. I mean, this is a, this is a profession, right? And, and the people who are really good at it, you know, take the, take the professional values really seriously be prepared, be uh, knowledgeable of the, about the, the law, be knowledgeable about your case, be good at explaining yourself and communicating, be courteous and polite, which does not mean giving up your passion, but it just means respecting the, the rules of engagement. I, I just think you can never emphasize that enough. And I think it really shows when people practice that way. And it's one of the things I really admire about the college, and I'm not just saying this because the college is honoring me. I mean, one of the things that I really admire about the college is that the college believes exactly what I just said. I mean, so the importance of professionalism, just the, the process of how lawyers are vetted and chosen to be fellows of the college. I mean, I think that reflects that. It's like you're really looking at someone's professionalism. So I just don't think that can be emphasized enough. Well, Judge Fogel, once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your wisdom and the thoughts you shared, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for your great questions, and thanks for taking the time to prepare. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every inspiring episode.